Let's pray. Dear Lord, with so much going on in our world, so many distractions, and even even as we're sitting here or at home listening and watching, Lord, we are prone to wonder. We are, our minds tend to be everywhere except on where it should be. Just um, enable us, Lord, to concentrate, to listen intently, and then to do what it says in your word, to be praising you, to be thankful, and to live our lives, Lord. You are the fountain of every blessing. Amen. The mystery from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, and this is part 4 in our series. So we are in our, in our series in Ephesians, and we find ourselves in the, still in the opening verses of the first chapter where the Apostle, the Apostle Paul proceeds to tell us what God has done and how, indeed, how richly blessed the believer, every believer, is in and through Christ. And, and in these verses, from verses 3 to 14, it's one whole chunk. There are no commas, there are no full stops, there are no sentences, no paragraphs. He does not take a breath, but continues on until the end of verse 14. And as the Spirit continues to pour these words, and he's just writing them down, or he's dictating it to his assistant, he just cannot stop talking about God. And the God, the Trinitarian God, the God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he speaks of all in this passage, if you look, read intently, you will see that all three members of the Godhead are working together in unison to work together to bring about our salvation. So here's another way that you, we can split this, this, this block. It's a very helpful way. So in verses 3 to 6, the Father, the Father planned our salvation from eternity past. We looked at that last week. We looked at, at some of those beautiful yet controversial words that we have been chosen, predestined and adopted. And then in verses 7 to 10, how the Son accomplished our salvation on the cross. And that's what we're looking at this morning, verses 7 to 10. And then in verses 11 to 14, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who has signed, sealed and delivered us into our new standing and relationship. And that will be the next, chapter, the next message in, in Ephesians. So let's uh, get into it. Redeemed from the first part of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. If you had been a Christian for a while, you would, have, you would, be, you would be quite used to this word, redeemer, redemption. And mainly because it's mainly used today in a religious context. But you go outside in the workplace and school or wherever, that word it just doesn't come up all that often. But at the time where, where this was written, there were, they say that there were about 6 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 
And slavery during the Roman Empire wasn't based on race. Blacks, whites, Asians, they were all, everybody was, uh, slavery was based on economic debt and being conquered or a prisoner of war, you were a slave. So these slaves were bought and sold like cattle, like furniture, a commodity. But a person could buy a slave for the purpose of setting them free. It was a very, very generous act, act, but you could buy somebody and set them free. Now, every Gentile in the the Roman world would have thought of this, they would have thought of this when they thought of the word redemption. Redemption meant release from bondage by the payment of a price. In Christ, we have been set free from the law. We have been set free from slavery to sin, as well as set free from the power of Satan. It's pretty big. This is what it's saying here. There is a story that in uh, 75 BC, 75 years before the birth of Christ, a young Roman nobleman named Julius Caesar, you might have heard of him. Um, he was, before being emperor, he was kidnapped by pirates while sailing uh, in the Aegean Sea and he was held for ransom. And when the, his captors demanded 20 talents of silver in ransom, which is about $1 million today, it was a a lot of money in those days. But Caesar laughed. He actually laughed and said that they obviously had no idea who he was. He insisted that they raise the ransom to 50 talents or, you know, two, two and a half a million dollars because he believed he was worth a lot more than that. No, no, you're asking too little for me. Ask for more. What a difference we see between Caesar's arrogant measure of his own worth, the, the value that he put in his own life, and the value that God places on each of us. And sometimes even the value that we put on ourselves, we don't actually value our own lives the way that God values us. Our worth is not measured in terms of monetary value. That's the way that society does, values us, according to what is he worth, right? You you hear that term on the newspapers and others when they talk about something? Well, what's Bill Gates worth? Oh, $120 billion. That's what he's worth. But God has a different measuring stick. And our worth is not measured in monetary value or even intellectual value. It is measured on, by what our Heavenly Father has done on our behalf. What are we worth? Well, it's actually priceless. It's... What ransom did he pay for us? Well, the highest possible price. He gave his son to 
pay the ransom for you and me. His, his only son, it's not like he had a lot to choose from, his only son on the cross to rescue us from sin. So redeemed, that's what redemption means. Then we come to the next word, forgiven, the second part of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Wow, what a statement that is. The fact of our forgiveness presupposes our guilt. The bad news is that we are guilty. Sorry to remind you of that. The Greek word for forgiveness means dismissed or or carried away. That's what forgiveness means. They are no longer considered or taken into account. They are ignored. When Christ died and he carried away our sins so that they will never be seen again, never be brought again as an issue. This is why David said in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a result of his sacrifice, our sins were cancelled so that we wouldn't be cancelled. This is why the greatest need of every person, whether he recognises it or not, is to have God forgive their sins before they die and face God's eternal punishment and eternity in hell. Wow, Paul, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Hmm. Surely there has to be another way. Unfortunately, there is an idea today where the good news of the gospel is not all that good because our, we're not really that bad. Our so-called sins are not really sins. They're just misunderstandings, maybe. Or, and if they are, they're not really our fault. So there's no real need to feel guilty all the time, okay? That's what they tell us. And, and this, where does this come from, this whole idea? It comes out of the school of behaviorism, which says that we can't help ourselves for what we did. We are actually, like I said last week, we, we are victims of our genetic makeup and circumstances which made us who we are. So we see ourselves as victims. There's that word which is very popular today, as victims, the victimhood. We see ourselves as victims, not as perpetrators. So you don't really need a saviour. Saviour from what? You just need to find someone to blame. Clearly, that's not the message of the Bible. And yet, increasingly, that's the message of the gospel that has been diluted even from the pulpits. 
even in our denomination, even in Protestant churches around the world. And I'm not just talking about Joel Osteen. I'm not just talking about them. I'm in very subtle ways, and sometimes not so subtle. This is what he's been taught. 140 years ago, I'm giving you a bit of history this morning. It's, it's good, isn't it? Give you, give you a bit of context. 140 years ago, um, the greatest... Uh, well, it's between Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. They were the greatest Russian writers of all time, pretty much. And Fyodor Dostoevsky, what a life. He, he wrote a novel called The Brothers Karamazov. It's actually been made into a movie, and Yul Brynner was, was one of them in the 1950s. And uh, that was his novel. And in that novel, there's a chapter called The Grand Inquisitor. In that, he imagines Jesus returning to 16th century Spain, but Jesus is not welcomed by the, by the Spanish, by the church authorities. The Cardinal of Seville, head of the Inquisition, arrests and imprisons Jesus, condemning him to die. Again. Why? Because the church has shifted course. It has decided to meet instinctual human cravings rather than calling men to repentance. It has decided to bend its message to felt needs. And rather than calling forth the high, holy and and, and difficult freedom of, of faith, working through love, sacrificial love. So Jesus' biblical example and message are deemed too hard for the weak souls of today. And the church has decided to make it easier. This is Dostoevsky in his novel 140 years ago. Quite insightful, right? So the, what we know today, the Inquisitor's Gospel is actually what we call now the Therapeutic Gospel. It's structured to give people what they want, not to change what they want, not to change their appetite. It centers exclusively around the welfare of man and temporal happiness. It discards the glory of God in Christ. It forfeits the narrow, difficult road that brings joy even in the midst of suffering. This therapeutic gospel accepts and covers and excuses human weaknesses and seeks to mellow down or ameliorate the obvious symptoms of distress. It makes people feel better. It takes human nature as a given. It's who you are. It's okay. Because human nature is too hard to change anyway. So we're not going to even try that. It does not want the King of Heaven to come down. And it doesn't attempt to change people into lovers of God 
given the truth of who Jesus is, what he is like and what he does, we don't want to change people like that. Just stay as you are. Don't beat yourself up over it. It's all about you, basically. God wants you to be happy. Is right. Now there is another there is another crucial practical application that follows through from forgiveness. And it is that you are to forgive in the measure to which you have been forgiven. Where do we get this from? Well, it's actually in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And and this is actually the only part of the prayer on which Jesus goes on to expand with these very sobering words. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. There's more. Something else that we need to note in this verse is that it doesn't say that God saved us out of the riches of his grace, which will probably make sense, but it doesn't say that. He did actually do something much, much better. Our salvation is according to the riches of his grace. And there's a difference. I might come across a billionaire who feels sorry for me and he says, Paul, here's a hundred bucks, mate. Yeah, get yourself some proper shoes or some better, better clothing, you know. Or maybe a thousand dollars, get new teeth or maybe change the colour of your hair, right? Nose job. So, this billionaire will just, he'll be out of his It'll be out of, right? But towards his family, his family members, his wife, his kids or whatever, it's basically, it's, you, it opens love you, you see the, the way these people live. They give incredible gifts to each other which are not normally shared with those outside the family. Some do, but I'm saying not normally. So, for example, in 2008, India, the Indian business tycoon, Anil Ambani, bought his wife, Tina, a super yacht named Tian. It's an anagram of Tina, obviously. So, at the time, it was the most expensive luxury yacht in the world. Clearly, He was not giving out of, but according to his riches, to someone that he deeply loved. He was giving according to. That is the way that God has loved us and saved us. Not merely out of the leftovers of his riches. God just didn't give us the leftovers. He gave us the best. In his son. 
according to, in proportion and measure of his, his riches. And I like the way that uh, I always remember Cookie, who was the, the principal at SNBC, he, he used to call it, picture it this way. He says, if he has given you the mansion, I'm sure he's able to throw in the lawnmower as well. Right? So if he has given us the best, don't, he hasn't held out on us. So because of his character, it's, it's there. It's there. You need a lawnmower? Fine, have it. What brand do you want? I don't care. Just... We have been adopted in the family, in the son. And so all these privileges come along with it. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. You guys don't understand, you don't realise, you don't appreciate how rich you really are in Christ. If God's attributes are infinite in measure, in like measure he has blessed us with the riches of his grace. And we are incredibly blessed. Incredibly. Let's move on to the next verses. Revealed, the revealed mystery, verses 8 to 9. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Now, this letter to the Ephesians has much to say about God's plan for his church, for his people. And, and, and this plan was not fully understood even in Paul's day. When we talk about mystery, what do we mean? Well, for us, it's mysterious how, for example, a single donut can bring instant happiness and then add two kilos to your weight, <laughs> clog your arteries and condemn us for an hour of pain and sweat trying to wear it out. One donut. It's amazing. How is that possible? That is a mystery to me. Perhaps another way to understand mystery is the wrong way is it has nothing to do with things eerie or freaky. Um, here it refers to a sacred secret once hidden but now revealed to God's people. In a way, believers, as believers, as the family of God, we get to be part of God's inner circle. He has revealed things to us that he hasn't to others. And he has revealed so many things, obviously not everything, because he's God, of what he's doing in the world and what his ultimate plans are. Well, God, what are you planning? Well, I've told you, it's in my word of what I'm going to do. You should not be surprised. So, why did he tell us this stuff? Because he wants us to get a grip on reality. He wants us to know what is true and what is not. It, it removes the blinkers from our eyes and enables us 
Not to live in darkness, but to see clearly we have the light. You are the light, Jesus said. So we know exactly what is going on. Don't just submit to the, to the headlines in the newspapers. You're going to go mad. And where is everything going? It seems like a chaotic world, but according to God, it's all actually going to plan. This is all part of his ultimate plan. Now, in the past, God's people have not always been these, this privilege, of course. In the Old Testament, they knew that there was a promise, a hope that God was going to do something through the Messiah, that the perfect seed would come and destroy Satan's work, and the promise was already Genesis 3.15. Okay, but maybe... The angels knew about this. Well, no, the Bible actually says that even the angels didn't have the whole picture. So just think about today how privileged we are. This is, I'm not making this up. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then even angels long to look into these things. Look how privileged we are. We have the whole story. We have the beginning of the story in the Old Testament We have the middle of the story in the coming of Christ and in his death. We are in the times of the Holy Spirit. We we know about his death, his burial, his resurrection. And we even have the end of the story. For we have the promise that one day he will return, he shall return. It's a given. And there are many mysteries that we read about in the Bible that word occurs a few times in the New Testament. We read about the, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Thessalonians talks about the mystery of lawlessness and the sinfulness that abounds in our society today. It also talks about the rapture of the church, something that we don't, we don't read about in the Old Testament. It wasn't known to the Jewish people, but has re- been revealed to us. In Revelations we read of the mystery of the Babylon the Great, the world power that will take over the world. Then there is the mystery of Christ and his church that we're reading about here. Ephesians talks a lot about that. And there is also the mystery of of Israel's present rejection, which Romans 11 talks about, and how God for a season 
has engrafted we Gentiles into God's plan, into his mysterious will. How is all that going to work out? Tells us. And all those things were previously unknown. But now in Christ we have been blessed through all the blessings in the mystery of God's will revealed in Christ. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Romans, Paul tells us in, 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 in sorry, in Corinthians, he tells us, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, says we have been entrusted with the mysteries of God. Entrusted. We are stewards, administrators. Not only has he taken us into his confidence, his inner circle, he has also given us the wisdom that he lavished on us, the spiritual insight to look beyond what is physical, what is apparent. There is a spiritual reality. And Paul is saying, guys, wake up. This is who you are. This is what you have. This is what you know. It's not a, to you, it should not be a mystery. And finally, unity in verse 10. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity of, to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Wow, what is all that about? So even though Paul was physically imprisoned in Rome, spiritually he was somewhere else because his heart and his mind were already living in eternity, in the light of eternity. Notice how he, he, you need to pick this up, you read it over and over again and, and how he moves from way back before the foundation of the world that we spoke about last week and then all, all the way in verse 10 about the fullness of time, something in the future, so past, future. And yet he gives us here this solid grasp of what we have now, redemption, forgiveness, in the light of the tension between those two eternities, eternity past, eternity future. Why? Because God lives in the eternal present. And we will one day know what that feels like, knows like. We will physically know it in every way. Now, because of sin, because of sin, it's obvious that uh, endless disorder and disintegration coming apart has come into our world. It started in the garden, and, and you know the curses that come on man in, in Genesis 3. Separation between man and God. They, man is separated from his blessing. He's kicked out of the garden. There is the enmity between man and woman, between man and his wife, and even between man and his environment, between man and his earth, and the earth. That is, it's it's going to be hard work now. Good news is that it will not be like this forever. So the great mystery that Paul speaks of here is that one day God will 
unite everything, heaven and earth, everything under Christ, both the spiritual and the physical. So this is God's magnificent, majestic plan to bring together everything under the rule of the Son. Now, here is the danger. This verse has been used as a, as a, as a key, keystone for the doctrine of universalism. What is universalism? That everybody will be saved in the end because God will reconcile everything to himself. Everybody will be saved. doesn't matter how you've lived, what you've done, everyone. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, if we are honest with ourselves, we are actually wishful universalists. Especially when it comes to those we love, or those we know. Even, just hear yourself and even some of the posts on, on social media and all of this when we hear of somebody dying. Uh, even when we hear of somebody dying and, and, and we are not certain of their eternal destiny. We don't know whether they went to heaven, whether they went to hell. We don't know where they ended up. We still say RIP, rest in peace. Is that true? Yeah, for the, for the Christian, yes, resting in peace. But what if they ended up in hell? How can you say, rest in, there's no peace in hell, just read the Bible. It's eternal torment. Oh, Paul, you can't say that. We're in the 21st century. We don't believe that stuff anymore. Okay, I forgot. I'm supposed to be preaching the therapeutic gospel here. So, okay, it's fine. That was the old days, but now it's okay. So, are we just being flippant by, by just throwing the word RIP everywhere? Well, we don't know. And we even say it, we even say it of those people who we knew, we knew that they had no relationship with God, didn't want anything to do with God. God never entered their mind except when they were swearing. And we still have the gall to say RIP. But even then, let me just relieve you for a moment, make you feel uncomfortable, and say that this is not actually what this verse is about. So they go, oh, thank you. I can go home okay now. In the fullness of time, God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church, created both by Christ, right? will be unified under Christ and he will be the supreme head of both. The thing that Christ has created and sustained 
through all these years in our lives before us, and if Jesus doesn't return after us, it will all be ordered and ruled by him. Well, where does it say that? Well, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, listen to this, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the first one from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have the fullness, his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, how? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So again, this is a further expansion of Ephesians 1.10. Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, in the same way that all things sprung from him at the beginning, at creation, So all things, whether spiritual or material, will one day return to him at his bidding. Maybe this is a little bit too much to take in, right? To take in to appreciate. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I just told you. I didn't tell you. God did. Just read his word. It's there. Oh, Paul, but I haven't got lunch ready yet. Can you just finish, please? Because, you know, I'm kind of hungry. You see how easily we go from something majestic to something so mundane, even? to our And we do this all the time. Yeah, we so easily slip into preoccupation with our petty affairs, our sore toes and the credit card that you know, we're going to pay. And add to that how we see the authority of Christ made, made, yeah, spat upon, trodden, mocked, blasphemed and laughed at in our world. But I'm, I'm not just pointing the finger at everybody else out there. I'm, I'm saying it to us as well. Now, this is what Dostoevsky was pointing at, and this is exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. If we had a choice between Jesus and Barabbas, guess who we would have gone for? Barabbas. But there will come a time with his authority when his authority will be declared by everyone, reluctantly or not, where every knee will bow. 
But even before that happens, let's praise God for the blessings that are ours now, already. What are those blessings? Adoption, redemption, forgiveness and so on and so forth and it keeps going and going. Give thanks to him for revealing his mysteries to us, his children. And in the light of past election and, and, and future perfection, yes, you and I will be perfect one day. This, this, while we're here, this, all of this that I have shared with you should lift our hearts to worship our Maker. Now, may our lives be impacted by this truth and to praise Him for His goodness each and every day. His wonderful goodness that we're going to sing about now. Amen.